If you'd like to turn with me, you can to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, this chapter is part of the ongoing story of Saul. Uh, remember in chapter 8 and 9, Saul was chosen as king despite uh, the Lord giving them severe warnings about what might happen or what will likely happen. Uh, and Israel went ahead with it. And um, there's a lot to say about Saul, and we'll, we'll get to that point here. Uh, but this is sort of the breaking point for Saul's reign. Uh, from here, uh, it is... Um, it's the time in which God begins to move on from Saul. Uh, and so we find these words here in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Beloved, this is God's word, holy and inspired, a gift to us, that we may know him, that we may love him, and that we may serve him together. So let's receive this word with faith, hope, and love. And Samuel said to Saul... The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the word, words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they come up, came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed among, from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites at Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And as it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. Behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on, and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought upon, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God 
and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, and you are the head, are, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until you are, they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice, sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as of the sin of divination, and presumption is as the iniquity and as is iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to the neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he turned and sa- then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, (coughs) sorry. (coughs) Uh, Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went up to Ramah, and Saul went up to the house of, up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day, until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Let's pray together. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you through Jesus Christ, who is our rock, our redeemer, and our Lord. Amen. You may be seated.
Relationships can handle a lot, especially good relationships. They can handle ups. They can handle downs, right? Uh, they can walk through difficulties. Uh, they, you know, you think of your, your marriage vows like through thick and thin, in sickness and in health, whether we have a lot or whether we have little, like relationships can coalesce in all of those kinds of situations and you can, the amazing things that relationships can handle and walk through. But under normal circumstances, dishonesty is the death knell to relationships. And dishonesty is one of the most difficult things to get over. Uh, parents, maybe you have given your kids this counsel, especially as they've gotten just a little bit older. Look, kids, you're going to make mistakes. Uh, you're going to make bad decisions. Uh, look, we understand you've you got to press the boundaries. You've got to figure out who you are. That's fine. But whatever you do, just don't lie to us. Right? Like, it's okay for kids to make mistakes. <laughs> That's what they do. That's how you learn. That's how you grow. Right? The worst thing that we can do for our kids is foster a, a, an environment where they feel like they just have to lie about mistakes that they made and not just let them grow and then come alongside and help or whatever. There's something that doesn't work in relationships you know, with kids and parents, if they can't tell you the truth or you can't tell them the truth. When somebody lies to us, we lose respect. We lose trust. And that trust is betrayed and we feel disrespected. Now, here's a painful truth. Um, who is the biggest liar... <laughs> in our lives it is us it may not be with each other but self-deception is a wicked reality a sickening reality we are constantly deceived when it comes to ourselves how good we are right or how bad we are uh, we often inflate how good we are, and we so often downplay how bad we are. We examine our actions, our motives, our behavior, our goodness with the best, most perfect rose-colored glasses. And we have near-perfect blindness as we evaluate ourselves, but we have 20-20 vision when it comes to the defects of others. That's self-deception. This reminds me of uh, one of the times that Jesus mocked this, this sort of attitude and heart of self-deception, and he does it in quite a humorous way. Uh, I hope you can laugh at some of the things Jesus says. He was incredibly insightful as he was funny. He mocks it by saying, look, if you're going to point out the speck in somebody else's eye, you might want to take the log out of your own eye. That's Jesus mocking us. That's Jesus, right? That's a, a ridiculous idea, 
right? He isn't saying, once you get the log out, then you can help somebody else. Like, that's not the point. The point is, is you have a log in your own eye, which you're not even willing to acknowledge. What in the world are you doing talking about the sawdust in somebody else's eye? That's self-deception. And this story is a fascinating story. It's a story about Saul, obviously. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at the story through the lens of what gospel honesty might do and might be. And what does it mean to live transparently before God? To live transparently with our own sin, with our own faults, with our own poor decisions. So Saul... Uh, Saul is an interesting guy. He is not the worst character in the Bible. He's a valiant warrior. Uh, he, he is courageous in some ways. He fights for Israel when he needs to. Uh, he is proficient in battle. Um, however, <clears throat> Saul is so blind and oblivious in so many ways. Remember a king, this is what the life of a king ought to be. The king ought to have his own personal copy of the Torah, the law, which he ought to read, meditate, reflect on, and then implement in his own life. And he is to do justice and righteousness. He is to exercise mercy and wisdom. He has to have the ability to navigate the complexities of human life as a king and to make rulings and judgments based upon God and his law and his character and his promises. That's not Saul. <laughs> Saul's problem is that he is disobedient to the word of God. But like I said, he's not the worst figure. right? He's not just given to rank idolatry, uh, but he is completely self-deceived. He is clueless regarding himself, regarding his actions. He's clueless with respect to God's character, to the way that God works. He constantly does the wrong thing and is oblivious to what he's doing and why he's actually doing it. But Saul doesn't see it that way. Self-deceived people aren't aware of that sort of thing. He's deceived about himself. He's deceived about his sin. He's deceived about his relationship to the Lord. We see he's deceived about his relationship with Samuel here. And what I want to do is just take a few moments and look at this, uh, as I said, with sort of a lens of gospel honesty and allow the Lord to speak to us through this figure, Saul. So the chapter opens with Samuel, <clears throat> and he says, go tell Saul to go kill the Amalekites. Remember... Uh, I don't know if you've studied Samuel recently. I, I know Pastor Brett hasn't preached through Samuel before. So the Amalekites were those who, uh, as, as Israel was coming up out of Egypt and as they were wandering in the wilderness, they were the kind of people that would hide in the shadows and when the bulk of Israel went through, they kept their distance. But if you were hurt, if you lagged behind, if you couldn't quite keep up with the crowd, they would pick those people off. These are awful people. Right? These are just like scavenger people, like the crows of the human race looking for roadkill, for easy prey. 
That's who they are. And God often judges the nations given their relationship to Israel, right? And so here is the Lord's people, and this is how the Amalekites treated the most vulnerable inside of his people. And now God comes to Saul, and he's like, look, I have not forgotten. They may think I have forgotten what they did. I have not forgotten. I want you to take a mighty army, and I want you to go, and I want you to wipe them out. I'm going to return their sin upon them. And Saul, you're going to be the vehicle of my judgment. But Saul, you cannot profit from this. You can't take their stuff. You can't take their goods. You can't take their people. Uh, You cannot profit from this in any way. You must view this exercise as a sacrifice that you are offering to me. That's what it means to devote it to destruction. It's like a holy sacrifice uh, based upon the sins of the Amalekites that Saul is called to offer. Now, this is a difficult command. Like, if we're not reading this thinking to ourselves, wait a minute, God is commanding them not just to kill their warriors, their men, but their women and their children. And did you notice even their infants, their sheep, their flock, their herds, all of it? Yes. Now, it's not easy to receive But like I said, just remember a couple of things. One, Saul does not get to profit from this. He gets no power, right? There's no kickback. There's no gold. There's no goods, right? It was the Lord's battle. He is dealing with the Amalekites. Number two, I want you to look at verse 18. This is not an ethnic battle. This is an ethical battle. Verse 18, Samuel or I should say the Lord through Samuel, refers to them as sinners. They are worthy of the judgment that is going to be unleashed against them. This is not an ethnic thing. It's an ethical battle. And so we have to be really careful because of our own sensibilities of these kinds of things to be offended when God uses his king to judge sinners. If... if, If this gives us a little bit of pause, we have to remember that this exact same truth is found in the New Testament as well. Jesus the King will unleash his holy judgment against who? Sinners. He will judge the living and the dead. So God is using Saul to exercise his rightful judgment in this earth, in this place in this instance. So it starts out good. Saul gets the armies, 200,000, and then you've got these, this other group from Judah. Maybe you've got like cavalry and others. It's a, that's a formidable force. Uh, Saul is not leaving anything to chance. He's not uh, bringing just enough. Uh, he is ready to unleash the, the armies of Israel And he gets there, and he realizes that there's a mixed group here. And it's the Kenites are also living here with the Amalekites. And he tells the Kenites, 
who were exactly the opposite of the Amalekites. So when the people of Israel came through, they fed them, they blessed them, they helped them. And so God is like, you can warn them to flee. They are good. They were kind to my people. And so he, he allows a chance for them <laughs> to get their stuff and get out of there. And the Kenites are like, okay, uh, we're out of here. And he rushes in and uh, everything went, happened so fast, they handily win. But look at verse 9. Here is the problem. The command said, don't spare. Verse 9 says, and they spared. That is a massive disobedience. God said, don't spare. What they did was spare. They spared what was good. They spared the king. They took the cattle. They took the sheep. They plundered the Amalekites. What they offered was what they didn't want. The worthless the broken, right? In some sense, they were really, uh, uh, I mean, it's just a, a profound sense of disobedience here. Uh, this reminds me of something. In my church, I refer to this, uh, have you ever heard the, the term, some of us are goodwill givers? Goodwill, right? Goodwill is that, that corner place where you uh, can go and find new shoes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Saul is like a, a, a goodwill giver. He's willing to give up things as long as he doesn't need them anymore. Sometimes we're like that when we give. Is like, hey, I don't really need these shoes. I haven't worn them in a couple years. Aren't I really nice, right, to take them to the goodwill? Maybe somebody else can use them. We sort of pat ourselves on the back. Like, there's something wrong with that. It's not bad to, to give things you don't use. But if you think in some way that that's some sort of a sacrifice or some sort of a good thing, you're sort of confusing what, like, giving is things that are important to me, not things that I don't care about anymore or have no value to me. That's Saul. That's Israel right now, is they keep the things that are good, and they're like, well, the Lord can have the rest. Well, they clearly are sinning, and the Lord comes to Saul, or comes to Samuel, and says, look, Samuel... I'm done with Saul. This was it. Uh, I gave him a command, and he didn't do it. Now, notice Saul's first response to this failure to do what God commands. He convinces himself that things are not as bad as they appear, and that he has, in fact, done a lot of good things. Notice he builds a monument for himself. What, what do you build monuments for? You build monuments to congratulate yourself for a job well done. Something meaningful has happened. In this case, the Amalekites have been overthrown. He pretends like he's deceived into thinking he's done what God has um, told him to do. He builds a monument there and convinces himself that he's actually done a perfectly good job. And he makes himself look good. He's done what the Lord has promised. This monument is like a monument to his pride. Remember what Saul has done. 
Remember how great I am. Remember this profound victory I have won. I have taken care of the people who were a thorn in our side so many generations ago. And notice verse 13. When Samuel comes, he brings his greeting. Uh, Saul walks out to Samuel and he says to Samuel, we did it. We did everything that God commanded us to do. I have fulfilled the word of the Lord. (laughs) What does Samuel do? You're going to have to speak up because I can't hear you over the sheep and the oxen. In other words, you haven't done. God told you not to take anything. And all I hear is the sheep and the oxen. So the first thing he does is he's absolutely convinced he has done the right thing. He is absolutely convinced he has done exactly what God wants him to do. He builds the monument and even greets Saul in this way. The second thing that he does... The second manifestation of self-deceit is that he finds faults with others rather than himself. I went out to kill them. I went out to devote them to destruction. I went out to do all these things. But they kept. But they took but they spared. Right? This is as old as Adam and Eve. Husbands blame wives. Wives blame husbands. Children blame their parents. We blame our leaders. We blame our bosses. We blame our co-workers. Uh, this is just what it means uh, to be a son of Adam. It is to deflect from myself and to blame someone else. Saul is clearly in verse 15 saying, look, I wanted to do the right thing, but they thwarted what I wanted to do. He denies personal responsibility. And then he completely throws the people, or his army, I should say, under the bus. But this is just an evasion because verse 9 said, that Saul and the people spared the king and his best goods, not just the people. Saul was not there saying, look, we can't do this. God told us to kill and to destroy. We cannot profit or benefit from this. They were in cahoots together, and Samuel is bringing confrontation, and he denies his own personal responsibility in this. So the second thing, or the third thing he does is he hides behind religious zeal. Look at what he does next. Despite the fact that he didn't do what the Lord told him, Saul now claims it was actually for a good reason, an honorable reason, a worthy reason. Look at what the rest of verse 15 says. They have brought up from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep, and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we devoted to destruction. So what he's saying is, actually what this really was is an act of worship and love towards God. We kept all the good stuff 
so that we could take it out of their land and bring it into Israel and offer it to God. That's why we did this. Like he's pretending like that was the plan the whole time. And so he's hiding behind this, this sense of like, well, we did it for God. It's our religious, it's his religious zeal now that he uses to cover up over his own sin and his failure to do what God says. Look, you can deceive yourself. And clearly, as Saul is speaking, he's trying to convince himself as much as he is trying to convince Saul. Notice how Samuel hears Saul's words. You need to stop talking. You need to shut up. Like he sees right through the whole facade that he keeps changing his tune and it's getting progressively worse. And so Samuel says, look, God told me the whole thing. You you can live in this lie. I am not going to follow suit with you. You can be deceived about yourself and what you were doing and the actions that you took. But the Lord has already told me what you've done. And here's the stinging part of the chapter, is he looks at Saul and he's like, Saul, God took you from nothing. Nothing. And he puts you in a place of power and privilege among his people. He anointed you as king. He gave you everything that you need to be ruler. And you sinned against him. It's good for us to be reminded that when we sin, we are truly sinning against the Lord. We can dress it up however we want. We can deceive ourselves into thinking it's something else. But the truth is, when we sin, we sin against the Lord. And we sin against his goodness, and we sin against his blessings. We sin against his kindness. We sin against his mercy. We sin against the things that he's doing in our lives and the blessings that he pours out upon us. Saul is completely oblivious to the the true character of what sin is. There's no reason to sin against the Lord like this. There's no excuse. There isn't some angle that Saul has figured out this is actually a better plan than what God wanted in the first place. It is simply a sin against God's goodness. Now, if the prophet came to you and exposed your sin and said, look, God told me everything, do you think that would work in your life? (laughs) Do Do you think that works when somebody says, look, I can see through the whole thing. I have the divine voice here. Let me tell you what's really happening. You would think it might work, but it doesn't. Samuel says, look, the Lord told me what you did. Samuel reminds Saul of his goodness and kindness. But then Saul sticks to the story. I did what God told me to do. It is the people. Like there's an obstinacy, a a genuine blindness to Saul. And look at verses 22 and 23. This is really the heart of what's happening. In verse 22, he says, Has the Lord 
Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as of the sin of divination and presumption is as the sin is as iniquity and idolatry. But you have rejected the word of the Lord and he has also rejected you from being king. So what is more important? Sacrifices? Burnt offerings? The giving of certain things to the Lord? Or hearing, believing, and obeying him? Right? Samuel asks a question to Saul. Which is better? Which does the Lord uh, want more? Does he want you to offer things and sacrifices? Or does he want you to obey him? And so he answers the question, behold, obedience is better than sacrifice. To hear God, to believe him, to trust him, to obey him is better than sacrifices. So what what he does is Samuel then pulls back the veil of self-deception. So Saul just doesn't understand how bad it is. Notice the things that uh, Samuel piles up in verse 23 just to show us Like, this is how sinful things actually are. Rebellion is like using magic and practicing the occult. Being self-important and doing your own thing is like making deals with your dead ancestors. That's, That's God just pulling back the veil a little bit, and allowing us to see things as they really are. That's hard to hear. It's difficult to see and hear what God says about sin, what the impact of what sin really is, especially with Saul, where he's making all these excuses and doing all these gymnastics to get himself out of it. But we do the same thing. It's not as if we haven't played these exact games. And yet from time to time, God just pulls back the veil of our hearts and he says, let me tell you what sin really looks like. Let me tell you what you're actually doing here. But I want you to see this in a positive light. And maybe this is sort of the point of the the message here. What is the real difference between offering sacrifices and being obedient? What's the, what's the real, if, if Saul pulls back the veil of what it means to be disobedient, let's pull back the, back the veil and say, okay, well, what does, it, what does God think about those two things? Offerings, sacrifices, as good as they might be, or obedience? Here's the difference. When we give offerings and sacrifices, we are giving something else to God, as good as it might be. When we obey him, We are giving ourselves to him. Which one does God want? Does he want your money? No, not really. He doesn't need it. Does he want you? Yes. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He wants your thoughts. He wants your words. That's what he really wants. And that's why he says... 
Obedience is better than sacrifice. It's not that sacrifices aren't good and right. In fact, we're going to have one in just a few minutes as we take the collection. Right? We're giving of our time. We're giving of our resources. We're giving of our finances. But it's actually more important that you are here worshiping him and giving your life to him. As helpful as money might be and giving might be, it is better to give yourself. That's how God sees obedience. I give my life to you. Now you might be thinking, I'm being really hard on Saul. Look at verse 24. Pastor, you should reread verse 24. Saul admits his mistake. Right? He admits that he didn't do what God said. So like he makes all these excuses and, and all these shrouds of his behavior. But finally, look, at the very end, he admits it. But I want you to notice a couple of things that sort of surround it that make, gives you a little bit of pause as to whether Saul actually understands what's going on. Notice what he does. He just wants Saul and he wants the Lord to gloss over it. Okay, 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 okay. I didn't do what God commanded, but would you just bless me anyway? Like, can we just get this over with and get past this and move on? Let me go with you. Let's go to worship. Like, let's pretend this didn't happen. Let's go, right, I'll go with you. Notice he also keeps referring to God, not as his God, but as Samuel's God. Let's go worship your God. Let's go serve your God. Let's go offer, like, notice he doesn't say, let's go and worship our God. There's still something wrong. Is he still not quite grasping what is happening here? Verse 30 is when he says, please, please, look, I admit it, but let's move on. But even worse, look at verse 30. Honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Don't tell anybody. Don't, please don't say anything. Like, let's just keep this between us. And let's, let's, let's do some damage control. Right? Let's do some reputation control. You and I know I didn't do the right thing. But when we stand before other people, they don't really need to know that. What's that going to do to morale? What's that going to do to the people? If they see one of the, like, the leader stumble and fall this way, what do you think that's going to do for the sake of morale? Just bless me. That's damage control. That's not repentance. That's not conviction. That's protection. That is somebody who is not honest before God, not honest before Samuel, and certainly has no interest in being honest before the people. None. This is self-deception. How do you get out of this? If this is the air that sinful hearts breathe, 
If this is how we breathe and how we respond to our own sin and the damage that we do to other people and our failure to uh, honor God and obey God, instead blame people or, or downplay what we do or cover up our sin with our religious zeal, or worse, all we do is project what we want to be and look good on the outside, how do we get out of that? We can't get out of sin, right? It would be really nice if I could stand up here and just say, well, do better. (laughs) Stop sinning. Like, that's not an option for us. Like, we have bad hearts, and we do and we say things, and we do things that we shouldn't do. How do we get out of the the self-deception of this? It is the gospel. There's no other way. The only way that we stop telling lies about ourselves and to ourselves is by hearing the truth of the gospel. That's what we need. Because we may underestimate our sin, but God does not. We may downplay, but God does not. The first thing we have to admit is that when we sin, we are genuinely sinning against God. Right? This, this passage is saturated with not simply the sin of Samuel, but the Lord's reaction to the sin. Saul is sinning against the Lord. Sin is real. Sin is offensive to God's character. Sin is offensive to God's goodness. Sin is offensive to God's blessings. As Christians, we have to be willing to acknowledge that sin is an offense against God. It's not just something that we do wrong between each other. It is genuinely an offense against God that grieves his heart. God is not indifferent God is not uninterested. It is possible, in the words of Paul, to grieve the Holy Spirit by whom we were sealed. When we sin, we are not just breaking laws. We are grieving our Savior. The second thing we have to do is while we might is admit that while we may not be honest, God is. Is that He sees all of it? Uncomfortably clear is His knowledge. There is no deception in Him. There's no lack of clarity with regard to our sin. It's not just how that the Lord tells us how bad sin is and how much it grieves Him. So honest, so clear is God regarding our sin that he has to offer himself for us. That's clarity. That is an understanding of the true nature of what sin is. Is that God has to give his life for us. That's what sin looks like when sin is faced honestly. When sin is faced in the way that God would have it. Let me put it in this way. The cross is not a testimony to how good we are. 
The death of Jesus is not a testimony to how good we are, but exactly the opposite. (laughs) Exactly the opposite of that. The cross of Jesus Christ is the Lord's honest, transparent assessment of our sin. It is true and righteous judgment about our sin. And so Saul is just completely out of step with this. He just doesn't understand this. And Saul is small and he's insignificant in verse 17. And yet the Lord made him a king. And now he builds monuments to himself to enshrine his pride, to pat himself on the back, to draw attention to himself. But our God in Jesus Christ, who is actually king, would rather humble himself, taking our sin upon himself. Saul blames the people for his own sin. Saul throws them under the bus. Jesus would rather take our sins and suffer for them. He would rather endure the penalty of our sins than cast blame at us. We were the sinners and the Lord gave his life for us. And so in Christ and in the gospel, it sets us free to think honestly about our sins. To think transparently about them. Because in Jesus we find forgiveness. In Jesus we find righteousness. In Jesus we find holiness. In Jesus we find everything that we truly lack. Because the truth is, is we're not just broken and have issues. We are broken. We have issues. We aren't just dysfunctional. But we are dysfunctional. There is still evil in our hearts. There is still wickedness in there. And we we have profound character flaws. We have addictions. We have lust. We have idolatry. We are indifferent to the sufferings of others. We are selfish. There's a little narcissist running around in all of us. We are proud, we are arrogant, we are judgmental. And the only way you can face those things is through the gospel. Otherwise, it's hopeless. Either you'll keep deceiving yourself and pretending you're better than you really are, or you'll become a Pharisee become incredibly angry and bitter towards the sins of others while you give yourself a free pass. The gospel sets you free to be honest with yourself, to be honest with God, and to be honest with others. Beloved, let us listen to the word of God. Let us obey his voice and walk in his ways. And when we fail and when we sin, let us humbly and honestly trust his grace. May the Lord give us his grace to do that. Amen? Amen in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
Let's pray together. Lord, you made promises thousands and thousands of years ago that in Abraham and in his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Lord, we are the living testimony of your faithfulness as the nations lift up their voices, trusting you, worshiping you, loving you, serving you. And our hearts are filled with hope because we know there is a day coming in which we will sit and eat and drink with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Samuel and all of the prophets, with David and the kings. With your people, we will gather together at the marriage supper of the Lamb, gathered in your presence to see Jesus face to face, We pray that you would preserve us and guard us until that day. Fill us with the joy of what is yet to come, the hope and the expectations of things we cannot even possibly imagine. We pray that you would do that for us, and we pray that you would continue to uphold and strengthen all of your people in every place who call on your name with us. Hear us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.